When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome to the New Books Network. So, I'm delighted to introduce my very special guest, Sally Weintraub, who I had the wonderful pleasure of meeting at a virtual conference in 2021 that was sponsored by the Washington Baltimore Center for Psychoanalysis, the Contemporary Freudian Society, at the Washington School of Psychiatry. It was, it was entitled, Awakening to the Existential Threat of Environmental Collapse, a New Imperative for Psychotherapists and Psychoanalysts. In terms of her very impressive background, Sally is a British psychoanalyst and is a fellow of the British Psychoanalytic Society. She is the chair of the International Psychoanalytic Association's Climate Committee. She chaired the Scientific Committee of the British Psychoanalytic Society and is one of the 31 global commissioners for different disciplines who participated in the 2021 Cambridge Sustainability Report. Among many of her achievements, she edited and contributed to a book published in 2021 entitled Engaging with climate change, psychoanalytic and interdisciplinary perspectives. And I actually read that book way back when and found the new defense mechanisms as it relates to the climate situation very interesting and helpful. She then wrote, I, I don't, she has written some things in between, but in terms of books, she then wrote The Psychological Roots of the Climate Crisis, Neoliberal exceptionalism and the culture of uncare. And now with three colleagues, she has written Climate Psychology, A Matter of Life and Death. One additional thing that I think is really quite remarkable about Sally is that um, she studies things before she writes books, other whole fields of study, for example, economics and social sciences, politics, and it's quite obvious in uh, the psychological roots of climate change, uh, the book about exceptionalism and neoliberalism. So uh, this is important because it lays the groundwork for the current book, which is um, climate psychology. So um, I find that to be uh, just a, a stepping stone. I think if you hadn't written that, if you hadn't read that, or if you hadn't written it, it would be hard to maybe understand climate psychology as well, at least for me. I, it definitely was helpful. Um, so with uh, my introduction, I think maybe it would be good for you to tell us um, what you think the connecting link is between, or maybe collect, uh, connecting links between your last book and this new one? Well, first of all, uh, thank you very, very much for inviting me. It's 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 lovely to have this opportunity uh, to talk about uh, this new book, Climate Psychology. Um, we'll get onto that in a minute. Um, just just to say that. Um, Engaging with Climate Change, which I edited, that was back in 2012. It's uh, Psychological Roots of the Climate Crisis was um, 2021. Um, 
And I, I very much appreciate you talking about how things develop through time. Um, I think looking back, uh, I've re-looked at a paper I wrote, uh, was published in the International Journal of Psychoanalysis. I think it was about 2004, six, I can't remember, but it was on entitlement attitudes. Uh, and, you know, and I think that that, that has carried through, you know, uh, we can feel in, entitled in a narcissistic way or entitled in a lively way. And I, I think, you know, so it's quite interesting. I was interested you picked up this this business of the way one develops. Um, so, yes. Um, and the stepping stones. Um, now, so that's one, I think. Um, just just one thing as well. Um, you mentioned studying other areas. Uh, there's another sort of trajectory that goes back to engaging with climate change, where uh, the 2012 uh, edited volume, which actually has a, a, a wide range of psychoanalysts speaking there, and I structured it as a conversation so that each paper, each of the main papers was to be discussed by people from other disciplines, as well as um, people with an analytic background. Um, Interesting. So, you know, I think even then I was thinking this has got to be a conversation that widens out. Um, so, you know, you, you invite me to think that I hadn't really made that connection. So thank you. Uh, and also, um, I think by the time I wrote this recent book, um, Psychological Roots, uh, I had come to realize that, you know, through analytic work, uh, you can see patterns uh, occurring at different levels from the micro to the macro, you know, something going on within an analytic relationship, and then you can see it mirrored in society. I, I, I have an impression that your work uh, uh, is, is also engaged with that kind of exploration. So if right. you're looking at society, then uh, you, have, you have a different sort of data. I don't think you can just, uh, you know, uh, take analytic understanding in one sphere and sort of apply it whole scale to another sphere. You've got to look at your new data and really study it. So that was something that really um, pulled me up short. And by the end of it, I was just thinking, you know, do I know anything at all? It was just, you know, I gave myself a kind of, because um, I'm not an expert in any of those fields, but I gave, obviously, but I gave myself a kind of, um, guidance, which was um, allow yourself not to know what you don't know. And remember to know that as a psychoanalyst, there are things that you know, uh, in a clinical sense. So I, I was sort of I had those boundaries, but it forces you to really study data. And that's brilliant, because you then start looking at the data of everyday life, uh, of listening to the news, of shopping in the supermarket, talking to friends, and you, uh, you really get to understand your culture, uh, and there and there you start seeing these mechanisms at work. So it was quite revelatory. Exactly. Yeah, so, exactly. So that's part of the the trajectory of of my own in coming to uh, my chapter, which is one of four chapters. There are four authors mm -hmm. of this book. We'll get onto that. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, no, that's sorry, a good sorry. I want I want to say something else because it's really oh, sure. important. Sure, absolutely. Sometimes because neoliberalism is is uh, neoliberal is part of the subtitle of psychological roots, and sometimes I think it can be misunderstood that I'm writing about neoliberalism. I'm not writing about neoliberalism. I'm writing about a psychological mindset which is narcissistically entitled and promotes except being an exception, which is a concept of Freud's actually being an exception. He wrote a paper on it. And uh, that, and so um, what I'm arguing is that I take neoliberal ideology and the neoliberal economy, and I trace uh, this mindset as it appears in the neoliberal uh, in the neoliberal economy and ideology, which is actually a, a different thing, and it's an important distinction, because um, this is not an attack on neoliberalism. I'm not blaming 
neoliberalism. Uh, but I'm saying that we need to dig deep into the psychological roots uh, of uh, our mindsets and explore them. And psychology, and in my case, I brought psychoanalytic ideas to bear on that. Because of course, these mindsets uh, are ancient, you know, they, they go back as far as uh, human psychology, and they really don't correspond to uh, left-right divisions. Uh, you know, you can have this mindset on the left of politics just as you can on the right. And Absolutely. this is a very important clarification I want to make, yeah. Well, thank you for doing that. It's it's very important to understand how people are using words because otherwise we jump to conclusions. Yeah, and, and also, yeah, and also, and finally, I won't keep us on this. It also okay. enables us to make a bridge and find our point of insertion into the wider discussion. We're not talking about economics as such, or. Right you know, political ideology as such, you know, the, the aim is more right. limited. Right. Uh, but but we need a kind of a, a bridge uh, to to be able to have that dialogue with other disciplines. Yeah. Yes, so. because you have to have the right language to speak to people in other disciplines. Otherwise, it doesn't translate. So I think that's a very good point. On that note, I think it's also important for us to know what you mean by climate psychology, because if if we don't ask, people might come to conclusions and they might be incorrect. Yes, I mean, I, I don't want to be dogmatic about this, and I don't know if you're going to say anything about, uh, you know, uh, in, this is embedded in a movement. Uh, and I would like to very much acknowledge uh, uh, in the uh, foreground, I was going to say, but it's embedded, uh, Climate Psychology Alliance, which really, um, I suppose, since about 2005 upwards, has been uh, trying to understand uh, the psychological aspects and the psychosocial aspects of climate um, and uh, uh, so it is a, a, a psychosocial understanding that we're talking about and so it was already intersecting intersecting with um, sociology and um, social psychosocial studies and two of the authors in the book that we're looking at today climate psychology were very instrumental in developing psychosocial studies uh, I understand Wendy Holway, uh, one of the authors, actually was a co-founder of that movement. Paul Hoggett's been very involved with it. Um, but Chris Robertson and I are very much rooted in the psychosocial. I think what this book does is that it um, it, it tries to make a further emerging integration mm -hmm. uh, with uh, ecology. There's tended to be a little bit of a... Uh, a separation between uh, eco-therapy, eco-psychology and climate psychology, which has been very false and not helpful. And I find it marvellous uh, that we all seem to be moving together um, to integrate these fields and in, in new emerging ways of thinking. And so climate psychology very usefully held those tensions for a long time. Uh, uh, one of our um, endorsers, Mary Jane Rust, has been very eminent in um, uh, talking about uh, uh, this field from a more uh, ecological therapeutic uh, perspective, for instance, and, and many others. So anyway, so Climate, Climate Psychology Alliance uh, is an organization that provided a home, really, for an emerging way of thinking, a new field, I think, uh, and was very supportive as well as, um, you know, uh, exciting to be part of. So I want to mention the Climate Psychology Alliance, and it was originally founded by Paul Hoggett, one of the authors of this book, and uh, Adrian Tate, uh, and it has many uh, important figures uh, who have been part of its development. I, I would like to mention uh, Rosemary Randall, Roe Randall, who um, wrote one of the chapters in Engaging with Climate Change, you know, has been playing a very significant role. But I could mention others, you know, Renee Lertzman um, from the States, uh, 
you know, many others. So there's, it's, it's an emerging, it's an emerging field. And uh, it's actually saying that if we want to look at climate, we need to stop thinking about something out there. Um, our external might be uh, the state of the environment and the climate, but our lens is that this is also filtered through uh, the mind. And by that, I mean the individual mind, the psyche and uh, expressions in group mind uh, as, as it can be studied. So um, it's very much um, focused, climate psychology, I would say as a tendency is very much focused on um, inner subjectivity. It admits of unconscious process uh, at these different levels. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's concerned with uh, the inner world uh, and the representation of the inner world. I mean, obviously, it's concerned with behavior, but I would say its focus is more on um, um, uh, the subjective mind. Well, thank you for that. That's that's very important information. I wanted to tell you that um, as a result of meeting you at the conference. Last year, I joined the Climate Psychology Alliance, and I'm very impressed with the group. I'm just getting started, but it, it is a very impressive group. So I just wanted to uh, let you know that you influenced me. Thank you. And I guess also you're talking about Climate Psychology Alliance North America, which because it's all... I am. Yes, so I am. involved now. Yep, yep. Right. Right, exactly. Um, I also wanted to share an impression that I had reading these two books. Uh, I thought in the first book, I'm not saying this was, was the intent, it was just an impression. I thought that you were saying this is a vitally important problem. We have to deal with this, the climate crisis. Um, when I read the second book, I had a, a feeling you were saying this is a urgent crisis that must be dealt with if we're going to do anything to make a real different difference. So it, it wasn't that it wasn't urgent the first time, but this seemed like it was urgent with highlighting and underlined in red. <laughs> do you have a response to that? I think that's very much the case. I think that we are, um, you know, the, the, uh, we are in a situation, um, and I, I go into it in my chapter. I would like to talk about the framework of the book because I'm only one of the four authors. It's really important yes, to, I know. you know, okay. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I, I woke up at the beginning of COVID, uh, uh, that the lockdown, didn't have COVID, but dreaded it. You know, with an upsurge of um, you know consciousness and wanting to be alive and so on, and uh, and an awareness of um, you know just how critical things had become, and uh, you know we had lived through COP twenty six, which was in Glasgow, uh, which really had not shifted the dial at all, and uh, you know we're still in that situation, only it's even worse, and uh, so I think. Uh, you know, along with a lot of other people, uh, we're seeing an acceleration of, of breakdown, moments of breakdown now across the board. And we're very cognizant of that. And uh, yes, things have changed. It's very urgent. However, I think that uh, the danger and the difficulty is that at the same time as it being really urgent, it's imperative that we we slow down, which means that we deepen our analysis and we include ourselves. Um, so, uh, and, and we do the work, the very difficult work that's required of us in, our, in ourselves and also in our disciplines and our ways of understanding. And that's what this book uh, is trying to do. It's trying to take us further in dismantling some of the effects of um, the whole of the modern era and uh, and in particular also uh, emergent ideologies and cultures on our thinking. Um, yeah. Well, that that is a very good point. Um, 
and distinction, I think. Uh, I, I would like to, maybe continuing along this line of thinking, I'd like to read a very short paragraph that I read, and I read it over a number of times before going further because it was jarring. Um, so if I may, this is from the book. This book is not about environmentalism, nor is it about practical solutions like clean energy, no go fishing zones, new economics, or managing migration. The predicament we are addressing is, in this book is not about the fact of climate destabilization. Rather, we focus on facing the fact that humans, particularly those living in the global north, by continuing to live as usual, are bringing about widespread extinction. This is what I had to read over a number of times. It was, it made me stop and think about your, what you were really saying. Could you say a bit about that? I, I will, but I, I think, you know, before we go on to that, and I will come back to it, I think I'd like to just say, talk about who are the authors of this book. And and okay. I think that comes from the introduction. So, you know, it, it, can we take a bit of time to do that? Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay. So this is a collaboration uh, between four authors who have all been very involved with Climate Psychology Alliance. Um uh, I can introduce them if you would like me to, or you can. I don't mind. Um, yeah, you can. You know them. Um, why don't you briefly inter introduce them? Uh, well, uh, I hope I do this adequately. Um, <laughs> um, I think you took notes on it. So, um, okay. So uh, there is Wendy Holloway, uh, who's an emeritus professor of psychology. I think she was based at the Open University. I won't do her any anybody justice in this, you know, uh, but. Um, and uh, th then there's Paul Hoggett, uh, another emeritus professor of uh, uh, politics, actually, I think, uh -huh. uh, but also uh, an analytic psychotherapist. Uh, at the University of the West of England. And then there's uh, Chris Robertson, uh, who's been uh, a chair of Climate Psychology Alliance and has been very involved uh, in work with something called the revision movement, um, uh, very interested in uh, cultural issues and uh, uh, deeply embedded in climate psychology. So we each have a chapter uh, and then we jointly wrote the introduction and we jointly wrote the, the conclusion. And, right. you know, that was part of our practice, actually, was to come together and to find a, a new way of, it felt new to us, uh, expressing ourselves, working together um, to, uh, you know, it, it stimulate our curiosity and also f see if we could find a common voice and also find, find our individual voices and our differences within that. So can we go back to what you wrote, uh, sure. with your quoting, um, mm -hmm. and just to, because that comes from our introduction and that's something that yes. we would all, we're all very yes. much signed up to. Um, I, I can say something about it now, but okay. perhaps the reader sure. might like you to read it again if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Okay, sure. This book is not about environmentalism, nor is it about the practical solutions like clean energy, no go fishing zones, new economics, or managing migration. The predicament we are addressing in this book is not about the fact of climate destabilization. Rather, we focus on facing the fact that humans, particularly those living in the global north, by continuing to live as usual, are bringing about widespread extinction. Yes, well, it is truly shocking when one gets it, isn't it? Yes. Truly, truly shocking. Um, and I think it's what some of the uh, disavowal, you know, turning a blind eye, uh, Paul Hoggett calls it sort of, um, various forms of denial that he, he, he groups in one place as, as soft denial and then he also brings in sort of harder denial but uh, it is designed to in a way extrude the violence and extrude from our visual imaginations uh, the real state of affairs and we see this unfolding 
more dramatically now, I would say, than even when this book was published, because we're, we're going through what's been called the great acceleration. Um, right. It's the great acceleration of carbon emissions. It's also the great acceleration of harm. And so, you know, at the moment, uh, you know, we we've, we're, we're living in the sixth uh, great extinction of animals. We're watching with climate events, you know, devastating um, uh, loss of life, like, for instance, in Australia with the bushfires and the, uh, the, loss, of, the loss of wildlife there. We are, we're facing devastating loss of human life now uh, in, in Africa in particular. And uh, in India, with the floods in Pakistan, you know, the, the drought in uh, the Horn of Africa and Kenya. Uh, and there is a truly awful way in which we, so many of us and so much of the time, we, uh, we carry on as if this is really not happening. And it's happening on right. a really big scale now, you know, and our media, um, it's something that I've been very concerned about. I call it the culture of uncare and it's a particular right. form of media under the, with the neoliberal project. Uh, it, it just helps us and, we, and we, we collude with it. It helps us just somehow manage not to see this picture, but we do know it. Right. You know, it's happening. Right. Uh, I thought. I think if you don't mind, if you could explain Global North, I think that would be helpful uh, to people. I had to look it up in several places. So it's particularly people living in the Global North. It's a very good thing you ask that because it's becoming more and more obscure, okay? Um, uh, it, I take it to mean partly geography, that the at the uh, that the high emitters, high carbon uh, emitters, uh, mm -hmm. tend to be located in geographically global the global north. However, um, that's not strictly accurate because you'll notice at the COP twenty seven in Egypt discussions uh, when they were talking about loss and damages and loss and damage and compensating the global what's called the global south. Um, the European Union was commenting, you know, we can't we can't make that divide anymore because uh, China's part China's part is is that would then be classed as the global south, whereas China's one of the highest emitters that there is. So uh, I think global north is a sort of a catchphrase meaning living a high carbon lifestyle, living way beyond uh, what is sustainable and radically more than uh, the majority of people in Africa, in areas of Asia, in Latin America. Uh, you know, it, it, it meant to cover that sort of thing, but it's becoming increasingly inaccurate given changing economic circumstances of different countries. Well, thank you. That, that's very helpful. I, I did look around at various places, but I think that you said that very well. Um, moving on to another thing in the book that I think is critically important, and that is um, reimagining psychology. Yeah. You talk about that, that the old way, modernity, is that is a thing that is either we're moving past that. We're moving to a new way of being. Um, which I believe is eco-psychosocial. Uh, could you explain that? I, I did um, understand it a bit in the book, but I think it's a pretty complex idea. Yes, um, I'll, I'll have a go. Um, first of all, I like the way you say we're moving towards something because I think people are very frightened of change. We're all very frightened of change. And, you know, change is not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Change is taking where you are and, uh, and finding something emerging that one can then integrate and digest and integrate into one's ways of thinking. So, um, you know, I can't speak for... Uh, all, all us four authors, uh, I'm sure each of us would describe this differently. Um, but for me, 
you know, taking my own discipline, which is psychoanalysis, um, you know, and I've practiced as a psychoanalyst uh, for decades, uh, you know, uh, I've seen um, uh, uh, changes happening where there was a sort of culture, and I'm being very um, oversimplifying here, and I don't mean to include everything, but I'm talking about a trend, you know, where I would call it almost a sort of a psychic retreat was set up that it, uh, which involved a mental space enclosing patient and analyst, individual patient and analyst in a room where there was a kind of culture there and a setting where uh, external reality in the shape of social forces and ecological forces was somehow kind of kept outside the room. And what's happened, uh, uh, you know, generally, I think, and it did happen during, during COVID, and it, it was building up to it before, it's been happening forever, but it burst forth during COVID, was Black Lives Matter, Me Too, you know, uh, climate protest, uh, and environmental consciousness, where, uh, you know, this basic uh, uh, restrictive model uh, began to be challenged. And also COVID itself, that had a huge impact on the profession. You know, Absolutely. the way the patients had to change. You know, I, I was talking to someone uh, as a supervisor who was saying, well, my session started, this is from Australia, my session started when my patient came into the room and said, excuse me a moment, I'm coughing, I can't breathe. There were forest wow. fires going on around Sydney mm. at the wow. time. You know, so I think it's caused that in itself, I think, uh, had a great impact. All these strands had a great impact. And we've seen uh, a huge conversation going on within the psychoanalytic discipline and, and, and its clinical practice, where we've now reached the point where, you know, um, we're challenging uh, our ways of seeing we're looking at how, you know, why why did we do this, actually? Because there's nothing inherently in psychoanalysis that led us to screen off um, race, culture, gender, you know, climate, uh, the ecology. There's nothing inherent in there. I mean, you know, Freud talked about our struggle to uh, negotiate internal and external reality. Reality was never closed down in this way. So I think... D despite it all being so alarming, I think we're living at a very interesting time where uh, we are bursting out of ways of seeing. Uh, it can be a bit worrying, <laughs> you know, to us as professionals. We're starting to hear debates about, uh, you know, uh, how can we be more climate aware as a therapist with our, with our young patients coming and saying they're worried sick about the situation. You know, we're having to uh, do an awful lot of work at the moment. So I think there was something emerging. The book, if I can carry on for a minute, do, do you want to say something? Uh, yes, but I can wait. I can wait. The book, I think, is addressing something in addition to all that, uh, which is that we're also emerging from... Uh, if you like, a straitjacket, uh, which is um, modernity, yeah, as a way, as ways of thinking, and oh. this is very oh. much what the book is to do with. Uh, yes, I, I, I'm sorry for the interruption, but I, no, no, no. I, uh, I, what I was going to say is really connected to this, and I found it to be something exciting, and that is. The idea of the need to undo hierarchical racial and gender fracturing. Mm -hmm. I thought that was um, a very inspirational idea. Yeah. Well, I think I think there's an awful lot of work being done on it. Uh, you know, um, uh, it, it's called intersectionality. Exactly. You know, yeah. uh, there's a great deal of work being done on this. Um, I think what we uh, as authors particularly also wanted to bring in, because it usually gets left out, is the ecological. Um, right. And one of the ways that uh, I write about it in my chapter is um, the way in which, what was I going to say? Sorry. Um, 
well, eco-psychological um, importance. Yes, I've just lost my point there. Um, well, it, it anyway, will. Sorry. Um, well, it'll, it'll come back probably, but it's, <laughs> okay, it's, okay. it's uh, maybe the excitement of this idea, the intersectionality of the idea of undoing the hierarchical uh, okay. Rachel, thank you. It's come back. <laughs> it's that. It's that. As I was listening and was very absorbed in discussions uh, uh, about uh, racism and casteism, you know, it it occurred to me what happens is that you get a privileged group, uh, and you get and the privilege is not just material. It sets itself up as a state of mind, as as, and it's very involved with exceptionalism and entitlement not to have to face psychic difficulty and pain. That is located in the others. That's projected into the others. And all the hard work of that's projected into the others. So, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I, I realized actually that uh, Climate activists, climate scientists, climate psychologists uh, were being sort of othered. You can do all that work. We don't right. have to feel upset about the climate crisis because you can do that work. And an example, actually, is someone I know, a man I know, who recently um, said, went to holiday in Europe and then described a hugely um, lots of air miles and, you know, all the rest of it, and said, you know, it was absolutely devastating. Uh, I could see signs of, of climate change, really severe signs of climate change there. And so I thought of you, Sally. <laughs> mm. Okay. That's very, that's very interesting. Absolute projection. You do the worrying. And mm -hmm. it's a little bit like, uh, you know, other groups, you do the suffering, you do the hard work. Right. Um, and so I thought, this is a new form of othering and we are and, and the climate climate is part of that you know um so i think you know i wanted to bring us into the fold yes <laughs> part of that intersectionality yeah yes well taking it a step further you said something uh, i want to make sure that i cover this in the time we have left um you talk about the fact that humans have forgotten they are animals too so that sets us apart in a way, I guess it's a kind of othering. It sets us apart as superior. And um, in so many ways, which you uh, you give examples uh, of uh, the Runa um, people of the Amazon, it's, it's a very interesting and uh, fascinating idea and, and, and very basic at the same time. Well, um, uh, I think that this particular strand is, uh, is more developed by Wendy Holway in her chapter and also Chris Robertson. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, actually, also Paul Hoggett, we all do in our ways, uh, you know, uh, but so let's say some of, first of all, I mean, this is just a tiny example with the runa of, of uh, the way in which uh, the modern mind, and it's, it is a colonial mind, a white colonial mind, uh, it's, it's developed into that, uh, yes. has, has, um, has absolutely hierarchically split off as, and de as devalued uh, indigenous culture which has a much closer, more life-giving relationship to the natural world. So uh, we've lost all kinds of potentials for connection there. Uh, so the Runa example is of a people who, um, who actually, indigenous people who conceive of other animals uh, as, as persons. Now, the, the, uh, the Latin American um, anthropologist Viveros de Castro has, has written extensively about this, you know. And interestingly, I think um, I found an example of this with uh, one of my granddaughters. What I'm saying is I think we have an indigenous wisdom within us 
that that uh, our minds are fractured out of. You know, we're encouraged to split in these kind of lines. My granddaughter said, "You know, um, where is the word uh, that puts?" Uh, my dog and me and an ant as all the same. And she oh, said, interesting. Where, where is that in the language? And I want to now talk about ant person, dog person, human person. And I thought this is amazing because, you know, this is a, a wisdom that I think is in all of us. And, uh, you know, if we could just be more in touch with our indigenous selves, which are, are not completely destroyed. I, I discuss this as one of these failed imaginaries. We push it to the shadows because we're so concerned with, you know, splitting and dividing and conquering and forming hierarchies and and, and being uh, prejudiced in a dehumanizing kind of way, you know, that we forget uh, our, our, our knowledge. So um, Chris Robertson talks about um, learning from his dog. And, uh, you know, um, uh, there are many, many, many examples of um, indigenous wisdoms that uh, we could do well to uh, get reacquainted with, not least that we actually profoundly, uh, we have profoundly messed up relationships with animals. Uh, in Absolutely. We, we idealize pets. Uh, we, we treat, we treat animals very, very badly at the same time, you know, as cutifying them. And, you know, we're all over the place with animals, but what we don't do is respect them for their otherness. And right. it's that otherness that we, we can then relate to more directly. You know, so that Chris Robinson describes looking at his dog and suddenly seeing that he hasn't been really looking at his dog as an agent, as a dog person, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Well, if I may add, you also talk about, that maybe it was the four of you, maybe the four of you were talking about this, that moving from modernity to this new way of being that in many ways there aren't words yet for some of these things and I think what you talked about with your granddaughter I think maybe there aren't words yet um, we need to uh, we need to develop a way to talk about this intrinsic thing we have that we haven't really tapped into I love that point. And, you know, language can be so constraining. And the four of us, we all felt uh, that, that we were emerging to a point where our usual words were breaking down. You know, um, they were too infused with the individual and individualism. Uh, they, they were too infused with separating disciplines. You know, we were struggling to find words. And this word eco-psychosocial is one of those attempts to, you know, it, it recognizes that we don't have the words. And uh, I know that I felt that absolutely crucially. And it forced me into, which I was pleased about, actually, writing my chapter in a very personal way, trying to find my way through the process of categories breaking down. You know, where did it leave me? Uh, and you're absolutely right. I love your point that we need to be very suspect of our words at the moment and, th and the baggage that goes with them. Um, you know, however, we're not talking about throwing out what's come right. before. We're talking about, you know, using what's good in it and uh, freeing ourselves at the same time so that we can we can be more lively, you know, uh, you know, one of the things that Paul Hoggart points out is how in this culture and in, in this sort of fracturing, we, we, we are hollowed out. You know, I, 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 we all bring this up in our own ways. It's very central to the way that I, I write as well, you know, the way in which we, this way of seeing the world hollows out meaning and connection. It hollows out Com passion, uh, com hyphen passion, you know, uh, and uh, and you know it also stops us from appreciating that when we feel something and we 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 say I'm feeling this, it doesn't help us to recognize when actually the community is feeling this, 
So our language is very constraining, but at the same time, we need it for representation. But we're feeling our way in this book. Right. I, I think one message I got is that we need to learn from other cultures, other people. And I go back to the Runa people of the Amazon who feel like they're part of the Amazon, not that they're they're othered or they other animals, but they're at one with one with this wonderful, wonderful place, the Amazon rainforest that is is in many ways it's being ruined by so many people that are chopping it down, burning it down, etc. I believe these people are in Ecuador. I don't know if that's uh, connected to the fact that they're still around or not, but um, I, I like the story about the way they talk about the jaguar and sleeping at it with in the same uh, compound as jaguars that are roaming around and that you need to read them and sleep with your face up. And that way, it's not a problem, but just reading the animals around you and other things in the forest, um, becoming one with. I think that's that's really uh, very important. I think it's uh, wonderful, uh, you know, uh, because it, it again speaks to, um, which is another thing that's explored in the book uh, by us, uh, is that, uh, you know, is what do we mean by intelligence? Exactly. Uh, if you if the if you if you credit that the jaguar is looking at you may not want to eat you if you can step outside uh you know our guilt-ridden paranoid fractured way of looking at things where we are top and <laughs> jaguar can only be a threat that we want you know who we want to shoot basically uh we might discover that the jaguar is not um at that moment wanting to eat us <laughs> you know, and uh, it just opens up. I, I think the more I go on, I think that um, we are terrified to recognize the complexity of life because it, it challenges our omniscience, you know, and uh, when we look, when we're learning so much more about life, we're learning, we're learning about how trees communicate, you know, there are wonderful books that have come out at the moment, I'm thinking particularly of Susan Simard, Follow the Mother Tree, you know, mm -hmm. where a tree will, in Canada, you know, will send out nutrients uh, to uh, to its own saplings, more nutrients than to other saplings, but will look after the whole forest in its area, you know, uh, promote life through, it's a different form of communication um, through net networks of fungi and so on. But uh, I, I was just going to say, I believe mushrooms do that as well. Yes, yes absolutely. And, yes. Uh, you know, and we can learn so much that can help us. I think, you know, I'm thinking in particular of this wonderful book by um, uh, Robin Kimmerer called Braiding Sweetgrass, which I really recommend. And it's, it's full of a, an indigenous wisdom that can also hold us better than some of our own myths. Uh, in approaching life and uh, but we need to we need to really uh, understand how little we understand uh, well this is uh, I think we're probably going to have to wrap things up but this is fascinating and I hope you come back and I hope we talk again because I have 10 more things we could talk about easily <laughs> or more um, I would like to ask you if there's any last thing you'd like to add uh, about well, about what we've been talking about, climate psychology and and or your first book, anything you'd like to leave listeners with? Let me think. Yes, I would like to say, and it goes back to your um, your noticing the urgency of our situation now. Um, I think there's a, a great danger that. Uh, we we will we will respond uh, by because it's also overwhelming 
and it's what you said, of not appreciating really how absolutely serious we are, uh, the situation is, and how serious we need to be in confronting this disavowal. And I would say that, um, and, and dissents into Paul Hoggett raises it, uh, issues of nihilism and cynicism and, you know, uh, and, and in a way not, lo not lose faith in people uh, and, and actually be willing to do the ongoing work, the working through uh, uh, to face just how the, the time is now to really take action to. And what I mean by also taking action is working on ourselves to make the changes needed to be different, to live differently. Absolutely. Yeah. There is no other time. It's now. And we may be too late. It's, it's that urgent. Right. You know, right. so I, I would I would say that. And uh, uh, but but that actually, you know, I know that you you're very interested in projective processes. Uh, we're all too keen right. on projecting problems for, for other people to solve. And mm. I, I would end by saying that I think uh, we've been sort of lulled and seduced and have colluded with and corrupted into um, a, a very surface level manic culture where we don't really have to do much work at all. We can come up with mm. sort of quick fixes the work yeah. that we have to do now you know as as therapists as practitioners as human beings uh as parents with the next generation has never been more difficult or more serious and it's now and right. it's our job yeah absolutely well um i'm going to um stop the recording uh, but we can chat for a few minutes after that but thank you so much. There's just such a wealth of knowledge in what you've said, and I really appreciate you sharing this with us. Thank you very much. And I'd like to also thank my fellow authors. And in particular, I'd like to say that Wendy Holway, I don't think we'd have this book if it hadn't been for her, you know, taking an editorial role and pushing us. And, uh, you know, so I'd like to thank the fellow authors as well. Thank you. Sure. Thank you for reminding us it takes a village. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye.